Hey everybody, it's Adam Shartoff. I just want to give a quick message before we start the show. Filmwax Radio just launched a Patreon account. You can find it by going to patreon.com slash filmwaxradio or just go to Patreon and search Filmwax. It'll come right up. Rewards start at $3 a month. You know, it's taken uh, 10 years for me to get this together. And I'm finally, if you're a regular listener of this show or you love to support independent film and shows like mine, which are an extension of that, please consider contributing. The amount of time and resources required to do a show like this, plus the YouTube show, is extensive, far more than you might might think. And so, like a lot of other people, I'm just sort of saying, if you want to show your love for the show, I would appreciate it. And there's all sorts of wonderful, wonderful rewards. Of course, additional content that nobody else is going to see or hear, and much, much more. If you just, again, visit patreon.com slash filmwaxradio and consider it. That's all I'm asking. Thank you very much. And now, on to the show. everybody, it's your host, Adam Shartoff, and the name of the show here is Film Wax Radio. It is Friday, June the 18th, 2021, and this is episode 673, and again, as you may have figured out by now, these two segments is also available as video recorded interviews. So you can go to Film Wax Radio's YouTube channel, not surprisingly, youtube.com slash filmwaxradio, and you can watch them there as well. I just want to give you that heads up. You can um, engage with Film Wax in so many ways. You know, uh, I mentioned at the top of the show in that little advertisement that you can join our Patreon and, and, and spread the word about it because what I'm doing here is I think it's pretty unique and I, I don't think there are too many people having these nuanced types of conversations with all these different people in the film world. As we speak right now, the, the Tribeca Film Festival is going on, for me, virtually, but we have on all sorts of guests on, and you can see all that stuff on the YouTube channel, um, and we'll probably post a special episode maybe next week up with some tri- Tribeca filmmakers. Anyway, what's nice about these two films that we're going to highlight today, and the, we're going to talk to their directors, is that they are both going to be available in theaters so you can see them virtually at home or you can see them in select theaters around the country so i think we are definitely returning to to the pre-pandemic normalcy again and hopefully working towards that goal anyway this uh, first segment we're going to listen to is a returning for her third visit to the podcast nancy bursky with her new documentary called Crime on the Bayou, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But uh, uh, then we're going to talk to, first time on the show, Lisa Imordino-Vreeland, who has a really, really, um, she's also has a number of documentaries, including including Love Cecil, under her belt. But her new documentary is called Truman and Tennessee, An Intimate Conversation, which is about the relationship between those two writers, Truman Capote and Tennessee Williams, all told through archival, and it's sort of a conversation between the two. But we'll get to that in a little bit. 
But first up here is uh, Nancy Bursky, who I had on with her Sidney Lumet documentary, and then again with her most recent film, The Rape of Reese Taylor. That was about three years ago by Sidney Lumet. Uh, she had made other films, including she, I think, produced Afternoon of a Fawn, a great, a great documentary, a dance documentary. Lovely film, if you ever get a chance to see that one. Uh, and, a, and The Loving Story which was a terrific documentary. But this is uh, Nancy's third time on the show, and the name of this documentary is called A Crime on the Bayou. In 1966, in Plaquemines Parish, a swampy strip of land south of New Orleans, a young black fisherman, Gary Duncan, tries to break up a fight between white and black youths. Outside a newly integrated school, he gently lays his hand on the white boy's arm, and the boy recoils like, recoils like a snake. That night, police arrest 19-year-old Gary Duncan for the assault on a minor. The Crime on the Bayou is inspired by Deep, Deep Delta Justice by Matthew Van Meter. It uh, is the third film in director Nancy Bursky's trilogy, profiling brave individuals who fought for justice in and around the civil rights era following the loving story and the rape of Reese Taylor. Here is, I should mention that this documentary, the, um, Crime on the Bayou, where Gary Duncan is involved in the documentary in the present time. This film is coming out today, and uh, you can go to AugustaFilms.com to learn details of how and where you can see it. Here now is my conversation with uh, filmmaker Nancy Bursky here only on Film Wax Radio. It's holding a ferry up. It's in the early morning now. They had the ferry running just to take me across the river. So when we get across the river, I really figured their intention was on to killing me. He's attempting to break up a fight. He puts his hand on this white man. He didn't punch this man. That's illegal. The essence of the Southern system in those days was total control. It was a totalitarian nation. Perez was making them do it. Perez made Landry file charges on me because they wanted to use me for example for the rest of the blacks. It's been said out here that you have a uh, that you can grudgingly admire his blunt talk. He, he is honest about his bigotry. I'm not a bigot at all. <laughs> Anytime white people would decide that what you were doing was improper, you could be arrested for it. Hey, Nancy. Hi, how are you? All right, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm sorry I was a few minutes late. I had another interview before this, and I was trying to catch up in between interviews. And I, I know, I... it's exactly what I said to, uh, to your publicist. Two things, by the way. We, I said two things I would just want to housekeep and get out of the way real fast. One is, can you please uh, pronounce the parish um, that, that Gary, from which he hails, the Plaquemines. Plaquemines. Plaquemines, thank you. Plaquemines. The other thing I wanted to just say at the top, and I can follow up with you, is that, you know, I've heard through the internet, interwebs, that 
this is a future project of yours. That's right. And, you know, I, Glenn and I are, you know, he's done this show a couple of times, but he came on recently to, we talked, we had an incredible time, but with my occasional co-host, Ileana Douglas, who's an actor. I don't know if you know her. Of course I do. Okay. I, I assume maybe you did, but I didn't want to make any. Anyway, so she and I talked to Glenn. We had a wonderful conversation. So I will get that to you. So, you know, if you I'd want love to-, to see it. I'd love to see it. And, you know, I'm, I have to tell you, I'm so excited about that project. Me too. And, you know, it's so, it's so funny to be kind of our film is just coming out and we're all very excited about that. And in the back of my mind is the new project too. It's, it's like, I wish I could clone myself. <laughs> <laughs> You've been on a streak, Nancy. And, you know, the first time we met was regarding Sydney Lumet. So you're kind of toggling back to that. And then, then we, we talked, of course, about the rape of uh, Reese Taylor. I, I love this ongoing relationship. I do too, Adam. It's great to see you again. And by the way, I, this is probably something we should say for the interview if you, if you feel like it, but I do feel like all these films are related. Um, I don't, start I don't Let's start there, please. Why, why so? Um, you know, I think that we're talking about people who are displaying moral courage. And I seem to be attracted to that. I mean, it's not unusual. Documentary films often do deal with that. I'm not, I'm not unique. But so many people ask me, how is it that you go from these race-related films to films about the creative process or people? And, and I, again, I don't think it's just a question of switching up and looking for something different and fresh. I do feel like if you, if you think about the Sidney Lumet story, what really came out in that story? It was really about his need to uplift people that, that stood up against corrupt forces, right? He didn't have the courage to do that during, do you remember if, in the film where he talks about that rape he re- witnessed um, in, in India, you know, when he was in the, in, a soldier in the Second World War when he was in the army? Very vaguely, um, yeah. I have to I, I don't want to waste a lot of our time talking about that particular incident, but it's one of the things that motivated him and attracted him to story to stories about people who did stand up against corrupt forces, like Serpico or Prince of the City. Yeah, well, you know, his life. I mean, he didn't he didn't he inserted himself or he created a life around himself where he had to actively deal with I mean deal with these issues of the day. I mean, his mother-in-law was Lena Horne, correct? That's, uh, yes. Well, I just was watching, um, uh, we will spend the crux of this time talking about Crime on the Bike, but I just watched Yoruba Richens, unbelievable doc. It's so lovely. It's so great that uh, I want, you know, your your fans to also be aware of her. It's on Amazon Prime. Um, oh, I, I know Yoruba. She's a friend. And, and I agree with you. She's a terrific filmmaker. Yeah. But it just reminded me of, of, of Lumet and, uh, well, if you remember, you, Lumet also talked about how his films yeah. have a, a moral message, quote unquote. Sure. But as you, as, as if you travel through the films, and as we did in that movie, travel through his life, he finally kind of admits, yeah, it is true that I'm, I really care about what's fair, mm-hmm. and and I think that that's what we're saying here too. That that so many of the films that I'm dealing with deal deal with fairness. If we remove racism from the equation. It's still about right and wrong, still about what's fair. And it's still a look at people who have the courage to stand up and say, I'm not going to take this. You know, I, I, I don't mean to be alluding to network, but <laughs> um, that, you know, Gary Duncan 
could have pleaded out his case. He could have taken a fine and he could have walked away and not have this on his record. End of story. But he didn't. He fought it. And he fortunately had, along with him, a very courageous young attorney that had just come in from D.C. to help him fight that case. Reese Taylor stands up and accuses her attackers the night of her gang rape in 1944 in Alabama. You know, she could have been killed and her family could have been attacked, um, but she stood up anyway to them. And, and Mildred Loving, after living in Washington, D.C. for I don't know how many years, can't stand it anymore and says, this is just wrong. Can't you do something about this? And she writes to Robert Kennedy and Robert Kennedy enlists the ACLU and the ACLU comes on board to help her fight her case. And we all know the history there. So, um, you know, I, I do, I think that these are related and that goes for Midnight Cowboy too. It's probably too soon for me to talk about the vision for that film. But I think that, you know, Glenn very beautifully brings out the fact that, you know, this film deals with some serious moral issues and, and certainly deals with people who've been left, left you know, left aside by society, they're outcasts. Um, and they discover that by tending to each other, by caring for each other, that's their salvation. Um, so I, I don't know. I think, as I said, I, this is all to say that I think these are all very much related. Well, you mentioned um, this uh, Gary and uh, his story where he um, was actually trying to do something positive and, 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 you know, got in trouble. He didn't stumble into an elevator or <laughs> try to help some woman in a grocery store. But it, like those two other examples, he uh, was merely trying to uh, intervene in a fight amongst some kids and, you know, brushed his hand against the white kid's arm and then was accused of uh, violence. And um, it thus starts the the, uh, the legal battles that you were referring to. Right. And and then this uh, Richard Sobel, his, uh, right, comes from Washington. It's this Jewish white guy. And by mm -hmm. the way, that was in, this is taking place in 1966. Was the brushing of the arm in 1966? Yes. Okay. Yes. That all happens in 66. Well, we're talking about, what, two years after the, the Mississippi uh, case where three kids come to college kids right they go down get Schwarmer Casey uh Schwarmer. Andy Andy, Andy uh, Goodman Schwerner and Cheney right and they go um, down and we, and we alluded to that in the film yeah yes so you know it was dangerous they, for for um these lawyers I, I guess that's the point you're getting to that exactly right. yeah. it's definitely dangerous for those lawyers to go down in the <laughs> south and if you remember Armin Durfner in the movie talks about how when they traveled because he was in Mississippi working for LCDC and and so you know, when they're, when he's traveling there, he said, people always knew where I was. And if I didn't check in with them at a given time, they would come out and look for me. Um, so, but he also makes this beautiful point that he said, I don't think what we did was so courageous because we could leave anytime. You know, it's the black people there that can't leave and that are subject to these aggressions constantly on and on, you know, they are, they are, um, just walking down the street is a political act for a black person. It was then and it is today. Now, exactly. But he did have a strong family behind him, right? That were You know, that's what's interesting about all three of these these subjects. They all had the strength of their family behind them. 
They okay. all had, um, you know, his, Missy Taylor's father was extremely supportive and strong. And, um, and same thing with Mildred Loving, her the family. Loving. Yeah. So, so yeah, Gary Duncan's mother. I didn't remember that. I apologize. Because... No problem. She was, she was very supportive. And the father was a member of the NAACP. It may be another reason why Leander Perez chose to make an example of Gary Duncan. Mm. How did you, uh, well, how did you learn about Gary's story? I mean, he's completely involved. Yes. In the, in the, in, uh, in the, in the making of the film, he's uh, in the film today. Um, I read the proposal for a book that came out about a year ago called Deep Delta Justice by Matthew Van Meter. And it, it really, it tells the story. And I saw it in proposal form. The book hadn't been written yet. And I was taken by it for all the reasons that I explained before, all the ways that it connected to my other work and, you know, just how powerful I thought it was. Um, and then when I met Gary, I was totally sold because Gary wants the story told. He's a kind, wonderful human being, but still feels very strongly about right and wrong. Um, and he was very cooperative and very emotionally engaged in telling us his story, which you can see in the film. And by the way, Matthew Van Meter has been a consultant on the film and introduced me to Gary Duncan and to Richard Sobel. Uh, Right. And and we will mention Richard Sobel was also, and then you also have this, uh, some wonderful archive of, of Richard, which of the attorney, which was, which I'm sure was very helpful considering We'll just leave it at that. So you have his involvement too. So it's a, it's a great that you were able to make this in the, just right in time. Everybody's getting older in that that generation. Yeah, it was, it was, it's, it's a hard film to make and it took a while and we ended up finalizing the edit during COVID. So we did that remotely, but most of the edit was in place before. So um, I was able to sit, you know, shoulder to shoulder with my editor, which I love doing, Anthony Rapoli. He's, he's terrific. And, um, and you know, we did, as I say, we did a lot of it as a, as a team. And then um, we, uh, we split up and did the rest of it remotely. Right. I've talked to a lot of people that were in the same circumstances during this, the post phase of production. We also should mention that this case does go all the way to the Supreme Court. I'm not sure if you've mentioned that or not, but so this... Was a, it was a really dramatic case. It's, it's, yeah. It makes for a great, riveting story. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the music here. You, you have uh, some luminaries involved here in the, in the making of the soundtrack. <laughs> I wouldn't, uh, yeah. Um, I was very taken with the Chet Baker jazz that's in there and the Miles Davis Um I'm not really sure why I felt so strongly about it. It has a kind of mournful feel to it. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that people would have expected me to use music directly from New Orleans um, and, and, you know, kind of more blues or soul type of music. And there was something about the cool jazz that spoke to the irony and, frankly, the cynicism of the story. Um, but it did have that kind of mournful quality that I found worked very well with the footage. It, it was kind of a juxtaposition. Instead of it fitting perfectly with the footage, it's just a little bit off. And that, I think, was interesting and effective. I um, was very grateful to Bob Dylan and Jeff Rosen, who allowed us to use Chime of Freedom, Chimes of Freedom. So a shout out to, to 
what's his name? Bob, what? Bob, what's his name? Bob Dylan and Jeff Rosen um, um, and Jeffrey Schulberg from Sony who allowed us to use that, that song. Um, you may have noticed under the credits, and I'd like to give a shout out to this song. This is a new, it's original song by Raphael Sadiq. Yes. And it's called My Path. And when people watch the film now, it'll be the first time they will hear this. It's being released as a single on Friday the 18th, the same day our film comes out. Oh, nice. And I encourage people to watch. Yeah, we, we can get some Grammys or, you know, some Oscars going <laughs> Yeah, these songs. Well, I just think it, it, this song works so beautifully with the film. I mean, right. you mentioned the, the the sentiment that we were going for, and it's I think it's a brilliant song. My path. Right, uh, John Legend. John Legend is a, an executive producer, along with other members of Get Lifted, his company. Okay. And John Legend helped to his company helped to arrange for Raphael Sadiq to make to do that song. So that's okay. how it. Yeah, and he's also, well, at least when I was there, he was on Sony. He was, uh, the, well, it's called Crime on the Bayou, and it's coming out. It's going to be in New York City and Los Angeles and select theaters nationwide this Friday, the 18th of June, directed by Nancy Bursky. Uh, and, um, and, you know, I just urge everybody, it's such a timely story, an important story, and, and a very entertaining documentary. Thank you. Well, if they go on the... Um... The site, the Shout, Shout Studio site, mm-hmm. the, all the other cities where we're opening. We're going to be in 20, 20 different locations. Oh, oh, very good. Right. Yeah. So um, the folks at Falco can give you that information if you want to post it. But there, there is a link that it, that allows you to see every city we'll be in. Sure, sure. No, I can manage that. And that's right. So I guess Shout, uh, is it Shout Entertainment? So is it? Shout Studios. Shout Studios. Uh, is that was that part of Shop Factory at one point? Yes, or? it is. It still is. It's just their, their, yeah. their, their we just, congratulations on the film. Thank you. And, so and also again on, on the next project, which I've got to figure out how I can be of help to you because uh, I, I think I could be very very helpful in this particular. <laughs> Stay in touch. You know, I totally will. But I'm going to also forward you. Uh, I think I might even have your email, so I'll forward you the link to the uh, that video of. Oh, with Glenn, it's. I think it came out very nice. Wonderful, Glenn is. Glenn has already been very helpful. He'll be consultant on the film, and this uh, has been a big success for him. This book, yes, it has. Yes, it has, and it also got a grant for his next um, project. I'm Brian Epstein. Right, exactly. Which will be maybe your subsequent. (laughs) Um, Adam, I also want to mention that if people want to learn more about a crime on the Bayou, we do have a Facebook page. Okay. You in a Twitter well, account. And I'll share that on the uh, also here at the end. And I'll put a, the trailer at the beginning so people get a sense of the oh, fun. Good. So, yeah. Good. And, pleasure to visit with you again. I, I, I look forward to more. Me too. Take care. Perez built a jail on an alligator infested island in the middle of the Mississippi River. Being arrested was one thing, but I didn't want to spend the night on that island. I was working with a law firm, Collins, Douglas, and Eli, which is the most important firm in civil rights law in Louisiana. Gary Duncan, appellant, versus Louisiana. Mr. Sobo. He didn't have no license to practice law in the state of Louisiana. Suddenly, the forces of civil rights had allies. Each time we lost a round of the case, Duncan was rearrested, put in prison overnight. 
It was all fixed. How do you prove that this system is racist at its very core? Claude McKay wrote, if we must die, let it not be like hogs pinned in an inglorious spot. In other words, we're going to fight like men. I'm going to die defending myself. The brilliant work, personal struggles, and cultural impact of iconic American writers Truman Capote and Tennessee Williams explodes onto the screen. In this innovative dual portrait documentary, filmmaker Lisa Imordino Vreeland masterfully collages a wealth of archival material, including dishy talk show appearances with Dick Cavett and David Frost, with clips from some of the duo's most memorable movie adaptations A Streetcar Named Desire, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, The Glass Menagerie, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and In Cold Blood. Featuring vibrant voiceover work by award winning actors Jim Parsons as Truman Capote and Zachary Quinto as Tennessee Williams. The film is dripping with wit and wisdom. It is a celebration of both men's fearless candor and often tumultuous friendship that honors how their identity as gay Southerners informed their timeless artistic achievements and relationships with family, colleagues, confidence, and most significantly, and most significantly with each other. The film opens June 18th today in select theaters, and in virtual cinemas nationwide. Go to uh, kinomarquee.com to uh, view it at the theater of your choice. Here is, uh, on our first visit to this podcast, filmmaker Lisa Imordino Vreeland on Film Wax Radio. Will you welcome the man who's that magnificent writer, a great dramatist, Mr. Truman Capote, Mr. Tennessee Williams. The great accomplishment of In Cold Blood is that I never appear once. I wanted to write a book that would read exactly as though it were a novel, except that every word of it would be absolutely true. I think the only thing I've done that is an autobiographical work was The Glass Menagerie. It was the first hit that I had. I really think you've written a masterpiece here. Thank you. Why did I write? We all... I have a great desire to escape from ourselves. People are always saying, are you happy? I think it's the most idiotic question I know. I mean, nobody is happy. You're very frank about your homosexuality in the memoirs. I was aware, of course, for a long time before it ever surfaced. I just felt things would be easier if I were a girl. It's nice to get to know you a little bit. And, and um, uh, as I said, uh, love the film. It's right up my alley. And actually, I do literary publicity for for living authors. So, so, but anyway, you know, I, of course, from my childhood, I grew up with Truman Capote and Tennessee Williams. You know, they were, I mean, your, your documentary, which which we'll say is called Truman and Tennessee, an an intimate conversation. And, you know, the crux of it takes place in my early childhood, but I remember it's just growing, you know, they were all over the place and they were always on the talk shows and they were always in the, you know, magazines and, um, you know, whenever a book or a play came out or a film, it was a big deal, you know, they were iconic, you know, so it's kind of like a, was it intimidating 
for you to, to try to take on such a subject? Somebody's asked me that question. Very good question. Thank you for asking that. And you know what? Yes, I guess it was. It was intimidating in a way because I knew from the very beginning that I wanted to use their words to tell a story. And so I was not relying on, you know, often with my other characters, I've had a lot of other assets in the sense that I've had artwork, I've had magazines, I've had photography. And of course, I had some of those assets, but I was really, it was about creating the whole narrative arc with these words, which were important literary words. And this was, you know, this is not as much my world. And, um, but it was really, I, I guess the, the other, uh, the other part of this was the fact that I was being, I was really pushing myself creatively because there's no talking heads. I did not want talking heads for the purpose that I do not feel that anybody contemporary needed to weigh in on their legacy, on their writing. I really wanted to tell it from the point of view of their words themselves. So that's, you know, I wanted to, it's always the idea of trying to give it justice a hundred percent. And, and that's, and, and I think that that's something that you know is in my work that I'm always trying to allow these characters to be alive themselves. And I think that, you know, ultimately this did give us, I, I do feel that, both Truman and Tennessee are alive. I mean, of course, they've been voiced by Jim Parsons and Zach Quinto, which is, you know, brings it just to a completely different level. But the fact is they're voicing their real words. And that's what's so nice. There's so much, right. There's so much available to you or you know, sufficient anyway, <laughs> for you to, to not need those talking as that you were talking about. Yeah, you know, just to explain again, like you, you use firsthand footage, archival footage of both Truman Capote and Tennessee Williams from talk shows or appearances, what have you. And then because there's so much also written word, you, you use, you, you cast Jim Parsons and uh, Zachary Quinto in the roles of Truman and Tennessee, respectively. Correct? That's... Yes, exactly. It was a great choice. And, and they kind of both, especially, uh, I guess, uh, Jim, just, just sort of Oh, you know, almost does the impression thing. He sort of inserts it there. I could hear it a little bit. You know, the 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 Truman Capote. You know, it's it's that and which kind of that persona of his really only. You know, the real Truman grew as he aged. It seems like this kind of caricature he created. Which I, let me ask you, engage you about this next part, which is to me that, that almost seems like what you're getting at when, I, when I've read some of your, your notes that about Truman, who was more defensive, perhaps like it would make sense that he might put perso- build the persona side to protect himself. Uh, whereas Tennessee, I mean, all that footage, like on the David Frost interviews, so raw, so stripped down. Is that your impression? What, what, what's your impression? No, I, I think you, you totally got it because I, I do feel that there is a caricature that Truman had invented of himself. And there's this persona that has been a persona that has been crafted from a very young age. And, um, you know, I think of the times when he talks about when he got to New York and he was an intern at the New Yorker and, you know, what he was doing. And but it, it was just it was a narrative that he was very um, he was very right on about. And, um, and the fact is, is that there is a rawness, there's a sincerity to Tennessee Williams, which really struck me. And you know, that's, you know, I, I only knew him through his work and through his movies and mostly through his movies. So I'm that 
the percentage of people who watched the movies and knew the movie more than the actual work. And then when I got to know Tennessee Williams through his writing, the biographies, and there've been some you know, brilliant biographies, um, you know, there's this man with a sensitivity and an honesty and not, not willing to cover it up. And, you know, in his journals, you know, he, you know, he had crippling shyness, okay, just crippling shyness. Um, and from a young, young age, and he just, and the fact is what you are seeing on the stage and all of his, his works was really him coming out. You know, there, there were, you know, he said the glass menagerie was only autobiographical work. I don't think it's true. Um, but I mean, Laura, 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 the character of Laura was, was essentially an extension of some aspect of who he Sure, sure. I mean, but I think in every one of his works, there was something autobiographical. But there was, and, and it, was, it was a challenge for us, because um, I worked, I edited this film with Bernadine Kolisch, who did my last two films, the Peggy Guggenheim, Art Addict, and Love Cecil on Cecil Beaton. And, you know, she just like, never gives up on on the narrative like she'll come in the next morning and just kind of hack away and she's like you know what we can do this a little bit better and it's and you know the the fact that we chose not to do a biopic on them gave us this freedom to not just to be able to kind of go in and out of these interviews and use the interviews as a launch pad to go off on discussions but what we wanted to do was to couple it because you know we we had the opportunity with the two characters to be able to say okay let's talk about their writing, the difficulty with writing. Right, or relationship. Sexuality, their, their, you know, whatever it can be, the fact they lived in Europe, their lovers, their addictions. And and it gave, for me, creatively, it gave me such freedom to be able to just kind of feel like, okay, well, now we don't have to deal with this, 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 you know, like the the basic things that you have to do when you're actually doing a biopic or, and, um, and I, I, I personally really enjoyed that. Well, you went into it, right? Just you were intending to just make a film about Tribute Capote, but, but it ended up being this conversation, this intimate conversation, as it were, which I think really, yeah, I, I thought it was very effective, actually. You know, it's funny you mentioned um, that you were familiar with Tennessee's films, and I found it, it, uh, uh, it, it I had this, this, uh, when Tennessee talked about how diluted the film, the film versions of his work became that you didn't really know what they were essentially really about the stories because they made it either so cryptic or just removed it altogether in the process of making the adaptation. And the same could be said of, of, of course, Breakfast at Tiffany's Truman story, because, you know, Holly Golightly comes off very differently in the film version as does, of course, uh, I forget what the character's George Pappard's character, uh, but, you know. Well, they do, and if you think of, you know, going back, well, let's, let's stick with uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, because if, you know, since Truman did want to have uh, Marilyn Monroe cast, it would have been a very different feeling of having Marilyn Monroe than Audrey Hepburn, because there's, you know, the whole call girl concept would have been a lot stronger if it was delivered by Marilyn Monroe, but with Audrey Hepburn, there's a certain innocence, and you know, in the adaptations of Tennessee Williams uh, plays into movies, there certainly there was a change. There was there was what was going on in Hollywood. There was a certain censorship. He was dealing with topics like rape, homosexuality, insanity, things that people did not talk about. And so they 
Hollywood didn't was not ready to have a taste of all of that. And so the, these the opinions were altered. Yeah. Don't forget my personal favorite, cannibalism. Uh, of course. <laughs> well, you know, it is an end subject depending on what current actors are into cannibalism or not. Or, you know, <laughs> we don't have to mention names. Uh, what what do you said at the towards the beginning, and I meant to ask you about it, was that I mean you've made films about documentaries about uh, fashion or right and uh, art. an art. So, and one could sort of draw some distinctions about or comment uh, similarities, and uh, and then this was a brand new, very different palette to or part of the palette let's say and I'm just wondering what tipped you into that what motivated just stepping outside your comfort zone was that it or you know I think you know for me they they all deal with there's certain topics that all my films deal with and I and I guess I didn't do it purposely it just comes out because it's something I guess I question so I think there's always the creative process that I question in my characters and what it does to them how it drives them um, but then how it drives them in both ways um, it can, you know, omit kind of part of their life because it's a sacrifice that has to happen. So I think there's that part. Right. And then I think I like the idea of people reinventing themselves. And in a case of, I don't think that Tennessee did. Um, I think that Truman certainly. There, there was a clear, there's an intention, an intentional act on his part to reinvent himself from a young age. You know? And and then I also feel, so I think that those are things that are always, that those are aspects that are important and, and qualities that are important in my work. Creatively, it was a real, it was just being able to do it this way and not have talking heads was something I wanted to do from the start. And of course, it did end up becoming a Truman in Tennessee because there was another film in the works, uh, another Truman Capote. Oh. They were going to get it done. It's the Capote tapes. And I'm sure it's, yeah. It's a great film, but it's, and I knew it was going to be different anyway. I, I, I knew because we all tell stories in different ways, but, um, but Mark Lee, who was producer and he's been involved in several of my films, he said, you know, let's put Tennessee in there. And it's just, and that's, what's so great about having a team and having a team who can come in and give you ideas and, and work together. It's all about collaboration. So uh, alcohol. Uh, plays a part addiction plays a part in both these guys um where and they were uh it's again it seems like tennessee perhaps was more honest and open about his 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 issue i think they both came they were both children of alcoholics so in truman's case it was his mother and that's really what she died from ultimately and um and in tennessee's case it was his father and so I think that this was another thing that as a team, we didn't want to shy away from the story. And also, you know, back then people weren't really dealing with it. They weren't talking about it. You know, they could just, it, often then back then it could just have been a, a heavy cocktail hour, but that was in fact addiction and they didn't escape from it. And, and I think that, you know, as they both went through their own professional struggles, this was a very this was an important part of, unfortunately, of their life. And, um, and it became, it played such a dominant role. I mean, the one thing I think to note between the two of them is that, you know, you, because I also, I also want to kind of reestablish their legacies for younger generations when I look at this film. And you know, what we see of Truman in Tennessee, if you, you, if you go onto YouTube, you know, you don't see them in there in the way that they look in the film that they're kind of 
full of life and inspirational. You know, you see these kind of broken down videos sometimes of them and, you know, them stumbling and just, and that, that's not, I mean, these are the two most important American writers of the 20th century. And we need to celebrate them. We need to admire what they actually accomplished as writers. And it's their word. You know, we, we are still thinking about their words. People are still inspired by them. And, and, that's, and that's why it's nice to be able to do a film like this. But at the same time, we do have to tell these stories. And today, we talk about addiction. We can deal with addiction. So it's completely taken on. Back then, it wasn't like that. And that's why we shy away from it. Yeah, they didn't shy. And it's interesting because drinking was much more social. Social. So there was less of a stigma on one hand. On the other hand, admitting that it was out of, you were out of control was a stigma. It was. And of course, you know, they had, you know, I, I, I think Truman went several times to, uh, to, to centers. I can't remember where he went. But well, it just, it didn't work. Right. You know, it, it just absolutely never worked. And, you know, and I really feel that he stopped writing at a certain point. I mean, it seemed like things really started to fall apart for him after um, In Cold Blood. I mean, he, of course, he did write answer prayers. I mean, I do not think it's hidden away in a locker somewhere in Grand Central Station or wherever, you know, conspiracy theories place it. Um, but, you know, Tennessee continued to write. He, he always did, even if it was whatever it was, it was not, you know, it wasn't pulled surprise material, right. but he did continue. And that, I think that's important, you know, and that's, and that's another aspect of Tennessee Williams that I admire because he was just, it was complete. He was always so obsessed with this need to write while with Truman, it just kind of it really did fall apart. Yeah. But you mentioned they were two of uh, the most, I, I might uh, stick James Baldwin in there too. I think you can definitely. No, I think there are others. Oh, I think oh, I think definitely James Baldwin. I just mentioned him in particular because I think it, there's a also could have even expanded to three of these guys in a way. Uh, um, oh, there's also James Baldwin, a lot of European time, not just because of yeah. his being gay, but also his African being African American. But I, but but the gay side of it also. Uh, I, I found that these David Frost interviews were, were just really shocking, almost shocking to see how unfiltered. He was, they both, everybody was. What was going on there? I mean, was it, were those Frost in, in, in Hollywood by then? This was probably after, was this after the- I think it was. I, I do think it was, and I need to discover them more. It's just that, you know, I worked with this, um, I hadn't, I've never worked with David Frost interviews, but I, certainly want to again because there was this intimacy you know because he was I, I think they sound that way because it all comes from him yeah and, and you know I'm, I'm a huge fan of Dick Cabot I've used Dick Cabot interviews often yeah. and but yeah. it's interesting because Dick Cabot who's been you know punched I mean the things that have happened to him in interviews and he's so solid and and yeah. such an educated man and he just can and and smart about things and he's always kind of he's like a a punching bag because he reacts to anybody who's been on his stage before, but he's always kind of very straight up and yeah, very proper. David Frost still very proper, but in there touching. Oh yeah. Leaning toward people and kind of creating this more intimate setting for them and helping them just open up. I think, don't you? 
Oh, absolutely. And I think he's a definite third kind of character in the film. And I, I, I feel like I, it, it would make sense. It would be after the Nixon interviews because I don't, I mean, most people don't know just how famous he became from that. And, and uh, he could do a show like that, which I don't think he could have done a show like that. So intimate, you know, he was bordering a little bit on maybe being a, uh, you know, a tab. I mean, I don't want to see tabloid, but you know what I'm saying? Like there was there, like he was trying to obviously bring up things that would be racy and sure controversial just for that. But, but it, it seemed he was genuinely interested in having these, getting these guys to open up about their lives so we could understand them better as artists and human beings. And he, he got as close as anybody probably ever did. Oh, I think so. At least in, in the body of, of, of interviews that we've had on Tennessee, I think that these certainly were the most um, intimate. I mean, I, I have to say that Tennessee did open up, but there's also something about the visual of these interviews because, you know, Tennessee's in this kind of navy blue, like skinny flat front pants, goes in and the, the set, David Frost set also looked so cool. And, and you know, it was like the best looking set. <laughs> and, and there was, but there was something kind of like, slinky about Tennessee and I think that the slinkiness also is due to the fact that perhaps I mean he always seems to have a glass of white wine right yeah yeah you know maybe something else you know he always does that thing with his tongue the the, the rolling around with the tongue and um but also you know Tennessee was much more of a sexual person and you can definitely get that just by because he has a sexiness to his to his character, while and and in my research, I mean, he's quite the he was also a sex addict. So he was not only, but he was clearly a sex addict. And, oh, okay. and he talks about a vet. Oh, oh, he doesn't talk about it as being an addict, but he talks about his sexual need and desires continually being addressed. Like he would go down to Times Square, and he'd, you know, the sailors would come in with the boat. He'd go down, cruise Times Square, come back, go in the morning, come back for more in the afternoon, uh, and the did not hide away from that. Right. While with Truman, you always felt that he was a little bit, you know, he had, he definitely had relationships. Jack Dunphy was important, but it was not like his relationships, the social relationships seemed to be much more right. uh, important. Right. And there's that, that photo, of course, the famous Truman photo, which was certainly some awareness of his sexuality back then. And so yeah. it existed. I think over time came this, need or need to yeah need to create that persona I was kind of referring to and 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 hide a little bit more and more as time so including his sexuality perhaps uh or who he was there's so much more like I I mean we didn't get to the a number of things but but I want to just urge everybody Truman and Tennessee and Intimate Conversation is going to open or premiere virtually and theatrically Yes, because yes. theaters are opening. Go to theaters, everybody. On, uh, on June 18th, which I, I think is that, fr- uh, is that Friday? Friday. It's playing the Film Forum in New York. I know, Film Forum, our favorite our art house. Yes. It's a perfect partnership there, or marriage. The yeah. film, film Forum is, is terrific. It's a, just the right place for it. So people should go down and check it out. It was really great to uh, meet you and talk to you about your film, I I, let's do it again with your next your next work and 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 one suggestion could be i'm envisioning a david frost documentary uh, that's what was occurring to me as i was talking about him and w- you know what a fascinating figure he cut and then also it could be if we're going to go back to this intimate conversation structure that you've all but created uh 
we could go we could do a Cavett versus Frost because they're contemporary. We could have them face off with different characters. Okay, so let's stop talking. We have a film in the making. All righty. I'm gonna be <laughs> Correct. <laughs> thank, thank you very, very, very much. Okay. Thanks for including me. Much luck with it. Yeah. Okay. Be well. Thanks. All right. Have a good uh, day. Bye-bye. I've known Tennessee a long time. Our friendship has had its ups and downs. Here is a man who has devoted his whole life to art and is a genius. Why do writers fall in and out of friendship with each other? So well, jealousy, don't you think? Most people think because somebody is a creative individual, they must be intelligent. It is not so, like Tennessee Williams. Capote's a liar, and everyone knows he is. It really was a sort of intellectual friendship. Though people inevitably thought otherwise. Now, I don't care what anybody says about me as long as it isn't true. I'm talking too intimately to you. Let's get on to something more general. <laughs> but if friendship leads to love, must it also, does it normally lead to sex too? No. Friendship leads to sex? <laughs> <laughs> Remember, everybody, uh, please consider subscribing to our Patreon account. Again, you can go to patreon.com slash filmwaxradio. Also, you can go to uh, Apple Podcasts or to Spotify, uh, Stitcher, rather, and listen to the podcast. And you can leave star ratings and reviews, also very important, and not, not cost you any money at all. Not a dime. In addition, we are on uh, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Spotify, so it's very easy to find the show. You can visit us at filmwaxradio.com, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you name it. YouTube, of course. We have all of uh, uh, almost every single one of these conversations as video. You can watch me talking to all my guests, including Lisa and Nancy, if you prefer. Take, we'll be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, take care of yourselves and the ones you love. Until next time. Bye, y'all. Oh, my God.